Hello, this is episode 262 of the Purple Psychology Podcast. I'm Nisha O'Reilly. So this episode is on how we view mental illness. I was going to record this podcast yesterday, but we had yet another power failure. It's becoming a tad unpredictable. I think every city in the world is left struggling with this concept at the moment. And we really see who has been abandoned from society. I bumped into a friend over the last few days on the street and they reminded me that I had notes on this topic. It's a six day a week job for them, basically shoveling people through the court system so that they can have mental health treatment on the other side. There's a lot wrong on a lot of different levels at the moment. And it's a topic that I found myself increasingly talking with parents about. I think the first challenge, and this is the notes that I wrote a few months ago, is that it's like we view mental illness as a parrot that sits on your shoulder and you bomb treats to, to keep it quiet. You know, it's like this external force rather than an internal part of our mind, body and soul all coming together and all being integrated. It's always been something that's very separate and external. And there's a stigma in feeling that your mental health and your mind are not as strong as other people's. But anybody's mind can be broken in the same way as you can break your arm. It just takes the right set of circumstances. And I've met so many situations over the years that people have lived through. And come out the other side very successfully too. So I think I have quite an optimistic view of this when I talk to parents. And the first kind of challenge I have at the moment is that yes, there are situations that really require medication, and I'll go back to that in a minute. But then there are so many situations that don't, and I don't really feel that the medication is even being prescribed with a a system to get people off the medication or to truly help them or with a plan. And there's an element of it being prescribed because that's the safe thing to do and no one needs to take responsibility, which I've spoken about in the past. But also there, there is an aspect that for some people it's a form of intention-seeking behaviour, and you're feeding that parrot style. And I've known so many people to lose the years, particularly between 17 and 25. And it's quite tragic, really, because the medication comes with many side effects, including weight gain in particular, and a lack of motivation, ironically. And then you dive into a worse cycle where you feel even worse about yourself and about your body image and about, particularly if you've been a very sporting team prior to this. And it's like as if your whole world has ended. And in, in many cases, you're not really naturally correcting your sleep cycle and really core pivotal parts. And it affects your, your diet and your hunger levels and the sort of food that you gravitate towards eating. So that's what I mean. It's not holistic. It's not managed in a way 
that you feel any more in control of your body. In fact, you generally feel less in control of that. So you've now got your mind in a space that you don't recognize, your body in a space that you don't like, and you've very little sense of self to become aware of your soul on any level. And you find yourself in the world. And those are quite pivotal years. And often I talk to people who've maybe spent what's deemed to be the best years of their life trapped in their bedroom and not done anything for a decade. And I find that very sad because it's they watch everyone else move on with their lives and then that exasperates it as well. So there are really core pivotal interventions and choices to be made at those ages for a long-term successful goal. And I think it's when people don't consider the long-term and consider the cycle that someone is possibly stepping into and they haven't contemplated a proper route out of it, then I get a little bit exasperated. But there are other conditions that I have worked with teens to try to prevent them from ending up in the same situations and scenarios as their parents. And one of those is schizophrenia, which is medicated very successfully. Like I know people who have gone from quite drastic actions due to their mental health space where they have attacked other people, being sectioned for mental health and spent a number of years in the system and then gradually rehabilitated themselves and are very successfully living their lives while medicated and managing their medications. So that is possible. But also what's interesting is that with core conditions such as bipolar, schizophrenia, manic depression, that tend to run in families, it's not a given that the, the offspring has to develop the condition. I did quite a lot of research into this a few years ago when I started. Both I had met people in personal circumstances who were trying to make sure that they had a slightly different life to their parents, but also then working with teens who didn't want to end up in the same spiral especially teens who were in foster care. And there were kind of three golden rules I came across. One is that that you don't have very much control over, which is that it seems to be quite pivotal what happens between the ages of zero and three years. And unfortunately, particularly with the conditions such as schizophrenia and manic depression, they don't tend to fully develop until your early 20s the onset and so so it's, it can be quite common for someone to have a child and then gradually through the pressures of that and a lack of support structures and a sort of a cauldron full of ingredients it can be the sort of trigger point and the onset for their own mental decline and the sort of the, the, the just the the circumstances can trigger it. And often that is untreated for a number of years. And so children do end up being in quite difficult circumstances. And, and often we don't particularly manage the likes of foster care very well 
where we insist on a lot of contact at very young ages, sometimes back to situations, which can end up being a little bit traumatic for everybody involved. And it doesn't necessarily help to particularly build a good relationship, and it can be quite quite triggering. So I, I often, again, I have a lot of reservations as to what we do at younger years and what we expose children to, and also what we force parents to deal with that they may, may not be capable and may not be capable of coping at that point. And it doesn't mean as someone gets older and as they get into a better balanced space that you can't develop a relationship. But you're almost creating sort of traumatic circumstances over and over to ensure that that doesn't happen. So that's quite, it's quite a big one. The second one is that it's pivotally important that you don't ever do any drugs. And that includes dope. With any mental illness being present in a family, it is a hugely critical that you don't dabble in drugs, even once. It seems to be a massive triggering point. And I have known families, particularly with manic depression present, where some siblings have dabbled in drugs and others haven't, and the ones that haven't are... are haven't been triggered and the ones that have very clearly have started to spiral in, in their mental health. It's a massive choice for you to make in terms of your mental well-being and it's not something you feel you should just go along with and try. And the third one was quite interesting and I know from somebody that I know quite well with schizophrenia that again this was a massive triggering point for them and that is that you should never live on your own. And so this is a piece of advice that I, I give to teams that I work with to try and find um, a good living environment, especially if they're going to college and they're going to have a certain amount of pressures in their life between having a part-time job and doing quite an intense degree. Your environment really matters. And obviously, if you wish to avoid dabbling in drugs, it, it matters who you end up living with as well. So there's a lot of choices to be made in the sort of environment that you live in. But it is very important for you to have company and to almost have a benchmark of well-being and have people around you and not to go into a space of isolation and aloneness, which can actually trigger quite a lot of paranoia. So that was a really interesting find for me, that something as simple as choosing to live with other people could be a very big factor in your mental well-being, and especially choosing to live with the right people. But nearly living with the wrong ones would be better than living by yourself. So that, that was an interesting discovery when I started to do research into it. But I think an aspect of this that, that sometimes kind of, again, this is why I sort of like personality but it's also why I'm reluctant to leave behind a whole series of methods because at this stage with certain personalities I can predict the sort of cycles that people will end up in the challenges that they will possibly face even the types of drugs that they will gravitate towards you can give certain personalities the most wonderful self-care package but you have to be realistic some people are amazing at having a routine 
and really need it in their lives. And there are many personalities that also really need a routine, but will totally rebel against that. And if, depending on how it is presented to them, and if it seems like rules and a series of guidelines to be followed, they'll never do it. And it alternates between being realistic and handing people, you know, one core thing that you want them to do every day and having them gradually build that up to also implementing the flexibility of, well, it would be really great if you did X, X and X every day. I don't care what order you do them in or when you get round to them. It's just I'd like you to find five minutes for this and 10 minutes for that. Or in some cases, I know that you won't do this on your own. It's okay if you find, you know, a sort of a self-care buddy to share this exercise with and do this, do this and connect with them, you know, once a week and do this for you, for both of you. So there's an aspect of building in personality rather than sort of copying and pasting the most wonderful routine and expecting everybody to to implement it in their lives because realistically they won't. There's also a really clear aspect in cycles, particularly in sleep. Um, Our melatonin levels change quite dramatically, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere around April is a very difficult time. And I often get, again, I get a little bit frustrated with other professionals who are very willing to put people on antidepressants during the darker periods of the year. So in the Northern Hemisphere, that you know, November being one of the most difficult months of the year here. And it coincides with, in most academic programs, being the most intense, difficult time. We love stacking up assignments in November at a time when people quite often get up when it's dark and go to bed when it's dark. You know, they leave the house when it's dark and they come home when it's dark and they just don't see enough daylight. So we put people under incredible pressures at the wrong times. And we're quite happy to sort of dole out these treats to volunteer parrot at this time. But then we quite often take them off them quite dramatically at February, which often ends up being another intense exam period. But it also ends up being a time that's quite difficult. The transition between February and April is quite difficult for a lot of people who are not necessarily in the most balanced space and they haven't, the the medication hasn't necessarily helped them to transition to balance. And what tends to happen at that time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, and you can swap this around for yourself if you're listening to this somewhere else, but... As spring, as animals start to move and as everything starts to flare and as there is more energy around, the daylights change quite dramatically, sunrise kind of naturally changes and then we come along and we mess with the clocks and suddenly you sort of naturally be moving to a point in your body quite realistically and then we, we sort of, we, we lose an air. And everyone's like, what just happened? And so that transition in particular can really mess with people's sleep patterns. But there can be a sense for people, depending on your mindset at that time of the year, that the whole world is moving on, except me. The whole world is flaring, except me. The whole world seems to be finding their partner to mate with, except me. And so... It's actually a time where I worry a lot more about people harming themselves or feeling suicidal, genuinely so. The times when it is dark and oppressive and you're under pressure 
are not necessarily the times where you are most likely to actually be suicidal or or have as much self-harm. But that time period in spring is actually a really difficult phase for a lot of people. I often really worry as we sort of suddenly take people off medications at those times of the year. So there are many cycles and there are many factors and there are many triggers. And I think a lot has come to light. And I, I remember having a conversation with one of my teachers in the very early days of COVID and sort of saying, you know, mental health has not suddenly become an issue. And it's not the teens are going to suddenly be very unhappy, but society is going to notice. Society is going to have the time to notice where everybody's at. And yes, it is going to be a trigger for what's under the surface and has been masked in a very thin veil for years for me. But we don't suddenly have more people dropping out of society. We don't suddenly have more people on the streets. You just notice them because they don't have a cocoon to go to. They haven't had anywhere else to be. Working mothers have been neglecting their self-care and sort of suffering a new form of feminist oppression for decades now. Since the 60s in particular, it's been spiraling, the sort of pressure they're under. And if you don't look after yourself, you can't look after others. But mothers seldom do this. And they grow thinner and thinner in their emotional well-being by the day. But we have suddenly seen a huge amount of articles commenting on what's expected from women in society, what's expected from mothers. Ageism has been a huge part of our society for decades. I remember reading a really wonderful part of Jane Goodall's book, Reason for Hope, where she talked about how disconnected we are from death, how we don't experience the process anymore, how we have not had multiple generations living together and no one's experienced aging for so long. We've been so happy to outsource our older people to residential homes rather than care for them in the home, that we are so disconnected from the natural process of aging and of, the, of your health decline and of nurturing and nursing. We have been completely removed from that for years now. And suddenly we're not. Suddenly we all feel a bit guilty about what we've done. And suddenly we've seen the importance of generations living together. And it's almost evolved just because of circumstances. We know that men don't have enough outlets, especially in Ireland. They don't have a space to meet beyond the pub. And Ronnie Doyle in particular is, is a wonderful writer that brings this to light of the sort of the people that men don't talk. They banter each other to death almost in the pub ingest that's how they deal with their worries and their anxieties so there's a massive awareness right now and there are a lot of solutions but they require patience and understanding and making people feel in control of their own lives and that it's not the parrot dictating your world but anybody can end up on the street and i've had those conversations increasingly with people recently whose family members have ended up there. You don't have to be from a bad family to end up in that circumstance. But not ending up there requires a roadmap 
and it requires the, the choices that are made very early in this process. And mostly what it requires is not seeing mental illness as some external force sitting on your shoulder that you just throw things to to make it quiet. That is a huge integration of yourself and your body and your understanding and that you can't take one action that can affect another and not expect consequences from that, especially when people are very young. That the choices you make when you have a 16 and a 17 year old in front of you are critical at that moment.